1: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. And the Slate Culture Gab Fest. And the just with me Mike Pesca That's right this is the first ever Superfest coming to you from the Regency Ballroom in San Francisco We're thrilled to be here in San Francisco thanks to our generous sponsor, Acura. If you didn't get an opportunity to test drive the all new TLX prior to tonight's event, we encourage you to visit Acura.com and locate the nearest dealer to get behind the wheel. It's that kind of thrill. So I was thinking about tonight, and some thoughts occurred to me. You know, too often, too many of us lie prostrate beneath the hooves of our enemies' horses. The riders, be they the Mongol hordes of ignorance, the Cossacks of indifference, the Janjaweed militia of misinformation. And we are forced to smile the grin of supplication through teeth of despair. But who will guide us through these times? Who will be that voice, those voices? They are the trio with Brio, the threesome, whom I am more taken with than Liam Neeson, The panel for whom the truth remains an ideal untrammeled, weighing in at a combined 481 pounds, hailing from Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with some time living in Washington, D.C., they speak in our voice, American, I give you the slate, political gab fest. (laughs) David Plotz. Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson. But now, now let us orient ourselves away from politics, the so-called art of the possible, and let us consider the possibility of the arts. Now entering the arena, through history, they have been known by many names, be it tragedy or comedy, They are the muses who light our fuses through verbal bruises regarding Proustian uses of rhetorical ruses. With culture high and low, Dana compares Mother Goose's use of elders and shoes to Dr. Seuss's, or when Julia boos the latest moves of Penelope and Tom, meaning the cruises, like when Steve effuses about pants and pies and chocolate muses, They are combined 12 credits shy of three doctorate degrees (laughs) with a combined verbal SAT score of 2330, and that's just Steve Metcalf. I give you the Slate Culture Gap Fest! (laughs) Julia Turner, Dana Stevens, Stephen Metcalf. Alright, tonight here's the format of our show. We're going to do three topics like we always do on all the Gab Fests. There's going to be four guests each. Some of you might be good at math. You see how four guests will mean that each panel will only have to exclude two people at a time. The topics that we're going to talk about today are California's affirmative yes means yes law on sex. We're also going to be talking about political television shows, and the third topic will be Is Silicon Valley Ruining America? <laughs> After that, we'll be, we won't be doing endorsements. We won't be doing cocktail chatter. We'll be playing the popular party game dictionary. So let me cast the first panel. This one will be Yes Means Yes. To lead the panel, Stephen Metcalf. And on this panel, let's have Plots, Bazelon and Julia Turner.
2: Dana and I are just going to sit back here and make out.
3: <laughs> that's, Consensual. That's just Consensual. the usual.
2: <laughs>
3: Alrighty, mixing it up.
4: We're like the uh, nerd Avengers up here. Um, so if Mike is the MC clown and Plotts is the underprepared fulminator. What, what am I going to be tonight? <laughs> so one last thing. I thought Dickerson was going to bring a guitar, and it sucks that he didn't, because I promised if I were ever on stage with David Plotz, I would sing uh, Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. So we're SOL. Next sorry. time. Next time. All right. Huge pescatarian. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I'd also like to thank Mike for giving me the one topic, and I mean this seriously, about which no humor is appropriate. So let's begin by asking, why is it unfunny? Uh, As a bedrock premise for this discussion, I think we can all agree that to deprive someone of their right to sexual consent is a theft, a moral theft, and it's surpassed maybe only by taking their life. Furthermore, it is a moral affront to an entire community. The California legislature has taken steps to say, going forward, this will not be a moral affront by an entire community, or at least that is the hope. The legislature has unanimously passed a new law aimed at curbing sexual assaults on college campuses, and under this law, students now need, quote, an affirmative, conscious, and voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity." Uh, The consent can be nonverbal. There are some technicalities. We might as well throw them out there before we gab. But there must be a yes rather than the mere absence of a no. And every college must have a compliant consent policy or risk losing state financial aid. Let's begin by also acknowledging that the law, public attitudes, and actual practice are three separate and distinct things, as evidenced by the culture of campus drinking So, with the best of intentions, is the California legislature throwing a de jure solution at a problem that needs a massive de facto change in attitudes, MBAS, and do I also, do I know what de facto and de jure mean?
3: Yes, you did a a good job, but it's EBAS. So, I think certainly there is a cultural shift that needs to take place. But I think there's a connection here between this proposed change in the law and the culture on campuses. So, you know, yes means yes has come in for a lot of jokes. that. You, unless you ask and get, you know, a verbal yes, yes every step of the way, we're going to have this sort of massive infraction and infringement on the law. I don't think that is going to work. And partly because California wisely said that you don't have to speak. Your actions can also be evidence of consent. And the reason I think that it's culturally useful and important is that we know from the research that just say no, and and emphasizing how prevalent sexual assault is on campus does not really work. It scares people, but it's not helping college students come up with um, what one website I was looking at today says a mutually enthusiastic approach to sex and sexual encounters. That's what we want, right? We want kids, we want everyone to be having sex that's fun, that they enjoy, that makes them feel good about themselves. And I actually feel like this yes means yes message could be all of those things. if campuses do the kind of education and bystander awareness to go along with it that can really flesh it out for students so they have a sense of what that really means and what it is.
4: Okay, so in the best of all possible worlds, it initiates this amazing dialogue and uh, we make progress on this issue, which is woefully needed. David, I'm going to guess that there's a a thicket of moral hazards in here that you are sensitive to.
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things that, that just make me wary. Number one, any law that passes unanimously, immediately your censors go up. And you're like, why did this law pass unanimously? This law passed unanimously because there's some sort of bullshit political pandering that's going on here. And I want to throw it to you, Emily, this question. This is a law, if California believes in this, why is this law not passed as a law for the state of California regarding criminal law? This is just like a sort of Third-hand, colleges need to put in place systems, you know, for how they're treating sexual assault cases on campus. What about people who aren't college students? What about all those cases? Why is it, if they believe this is a major thing, why is it just being done in this this half-hearted, let's just do it on college campuses and get that that college constituency wrapped up?
3: So I don't think it's half-hearted, but I think the fact that it's partial is one of the things that's making me hopeful and defended. They are not criminalizing all sexual conduct that doesn't meet this higher standard of affirmative consent. That would be pretty extreme thing to do, given that we don't know how this is gonna play out on the ground. We don't have a lot of evidence. Antioch College has had this policy in place for years. As far as I know, they're still having some sex at Antioch College, but I haven't gone myself to report on that, so, you know, look, that's a small, um, a small sample, and what we want is to see if this is realistic. And to use the college system of discipline and adjudication to try that out is much safer than the criminal justice system. The stakes are high. You can get expelled. I don't want to sneeze at that. But they're not as high as going to prison. So I actually think this interim step is exactly why the law is more defensible, not less.
5: But isn't it a little bit weird? I mean, aren't we already running into a problem on college campuses where there are two sets of adjudication when there's an accusation like this. So there's, you could have your college look into it. There might be some board. Maybe the lady who runs the bookstore is on the board. I mean, it's it's sort of this unclear, fuzzy process that happens on college campuses, or you can go to the police and often... You know, victims of sexual assault are reluctant to do that. But there are already two systems. It strikes me that in this case, the systems are becoming even more divergent because the entire standard of what is acceptable is changing. And that seems just deeply confusing. I mean, the best defense of this law that I've heard is that it will start and foster a better conversation on college campuses around what sex should be like and how to think about it and, you know, what it means to really be looking out for signs of enthusiastic consent in your partner. And that does seem like a good thing to foster, but this seems like a weird way to foster it to me.
3: I mean, I do think you're right about the divergence, but I don't think that's necessarily so bad because, yes, you know, college is a different kind of experience and the level of comfort that college students should be able to have with each other, given how much socializing and drinking there is on college campuses, we know that students are at particular risk. And so giving them this additional revenue, it's supposed to be parallel alongside the criminal justice system, not either or. I mean, it is true that to understand this, students are going to have to keep two different standards in their head at the same time, Um, so that's true. But also, wait, but you're
1: not really answering Julia's point, which is that colleges, as you have reported, as we have seen, are incredibly bad about investigating these things. And now we've just given them, we've created a whole new fuzzy set of standards for California colleges to meet and shouldn't we expect that given how terrible they've been at investigating these th- these things you know up to this point that they're now going to find whole new ways to be terrible about it
3: maybe but they've only really been trying hard many of them well some of them have really not instituted good procedures even now. They really became more seriously obligated in 2011 when the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education sent them a letter saying hey, you have to take Title IX, the gender equity law, seriously in terms of providing for discipline. So we don't, they don't have much of a track record. And really, if you think about it, the intense publicity and attention is like a year and a half or two years old. It is true that some schools are blowing it and have blown it. It's also true that some other schools are very earnest trying to figure out how to do this. You know, Harvard, for example, uh, a school that you have attended, um, just decided... <laughs> there
1: was very little sex. There was very, very little sex.
3: T-M-I. There was a lot
1: of no. No really meant no back in the but late 80s.
3: you absorbed that message successfully. That was good. Uh <laughs> Harvard just decided to have independent investigators who are trained look into these accusations as a way of trying to be more fair. Maybe that will prove to be beneficial and other schools will adopt that. So schools are experimenting right now and a bunch of them, including other Ivy League schools, actually not Harvard, have also adopted this affirmative consent standard and so in a few years we'll get a sense of whether this is helpful and if not, then you know the schools can take it back and California could repeal its law too though I do recognize that repealing law doesn't happen that often
4: David, is there a let's tiptoe up to a third rail of burden of proof arguments yes,
1: I consent (laughs) we can tiptoe
4: exactly, consent, but we have to consent to each step along the rhetorical path towards the third rail um, resulting in my death on stage
1: (laughs) plainly some people are really into that too in San Francisco, I don't know
4: (laughs) (laughs) you're
3: making everybody up here blush everyone um. <laughs> hold please
4: <laughs> bail me out is there a burden of proof discussion that needs to be had about this or is it premature before we actually have test cases
1: I'm with Emily on this sort of the laboratory of democracy you know we're testing we'll test it here and we'll see and so I, th- I do think it's kind of premature to get to any judgment about whether this law is terrible or is great until we start to have cases so, so this conversation is in some sense is premature so I don't consent to going further with it. I'm excited to see what the cases are like and whether we have a spate of, of uh, accusations that appear to be very flimsy or accusations that result in a lot of people being thrown out of school that makes other folks feel queasy or whether, in fact, it, it seems to be you know, changing behavior. And, I, and I, I think you're right, Emily, that, that doing it at the college level and doing it in this partial way is probably... A good thing to do. Can I ask a different question though?
4: Absolutely. So
1: my different question is, the real thing that bothers me about this law is not this law or even the discussion that people are having about sexual uh, assault on campus. It is that, and our colleague Emily Yaffe has written about this, to me, the conversation to have about sexual assault has something to do with consent, but it basically has to do with drinking. And every college in this state and in every state allows a huge amount of drinking to go on. it, it, it Either they explicitly authorize or they close their eyes to all the underage drinking going on. And underage drinking is, is a huge trigger for the terrible behavior that both men and, and usually women as victims, men as aggressors, are behaving. And to have this conversation and to not make it premised on talking about drinking first seems to me completely wrongheaded.
3: So I think... Go ahead, Bruce.
1: <laughs> he says with a beer...
4: I I think we found the third rail.
3: Um. You go, Emily. Well, I was going to make... I mean, I I think that talking about drinking as part of this conversation is really helpful and useful and doesn't happen enough. I also think, though, that um, one element we're forgetting is that there's pretty good research showing that on campuses and actually in the world, a very small... Percentage of men are responsible for most of the sexual offenses that happen. That basically, forget the like image of the confused guy who's not sure, and the girl is like also not sure. Because so I think we have that in our heads. But a lot of the really serious incidents we're hearing about are serial predators who it's not about being confused about whether yes is yes and no is no. It's about hearing no and not giving a shit and continuing on. And, you know, those are the students who are really worrisome. And maybe if the culture change changes and, we f- and there's more good enthusiastic sex, it becomes easier to identify those guys and stop them. I'm not sure, but I feel like it's important to remember that that's an important part of the conversation. And yes means yes doesn't really talk to them directly.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you just made a great case for this law being totally useless.
3: Right, well, or at least like only a small piece of a larger puzzle, right? And not necessarily the main um, remedy that's going to address the most cases.
5: But on the alcohol question, I mean, do you think this is going off the third rail, I mean, I don't know what the solution is there either. It seems like campuses can't really crack down on that in serious ways.
1: Why not? They have fraternities that are effectively operating under university license, which are, you know, places of pure debauchery and, and, and alcoholism. And they lose and the, and the and
3: students? They, and don't you feel Well, realize, I mean,
1: so, okay, you will... Oh, we're going to lose the students, but maybe we'll prevent a lot of sexual assault and misbehavior. So it seems yeah, to but me if like... if they stop that's listening something...
3: to you and you can't really stop their conduct,
1: are... Steve There are campuses... I'm getting the very I paid queasy for this microphone. I'm
4: getting, <laughs> I, I'm getting the very queasy mom and dad are fighting feeling from my childhood, and I'm getting very uncomfortable. I want to speak for all the hissers in the audience and say that the discussion about drinking and the discussion about rape are two entirely separate conversations.
3: Really? Why? They're not because, they're no, for that. They're Why? not
1: separate conversations.
4: Because the second that you start to commingle the two conversations, you are going with the same General community flow in the in the direction and presumption of guilt on the part of a drunk no, woman when she's involved guilt. in a sexual what? assault. Not
1: no. about I'm not guilt.
4: saying it's about you don't.
1: Do you do you want to minimize the amount of sexual assault that occurs, oh, or not? Oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> it's also, Steve. It's about risk, right? It's the
1: now risk. I know how
4: people feel about me, did. <laughs>
3: It's about risk and when, it, when people make themselves more vulnerable. I'm Close saying, to being you're
4: misunderstanding what I'm saying. The two are not, they don't crowd one another out. You just make sure that they're entirely distinct conversations. So there isn't a cognitive but confusion about
3: responsibility. the between the two that causes trouble that students need to understand. Do
4: you we want to send, to send the message covertly or, or overtly to young women that getting drunk is a license for the person they're with to sexually violate them?
3: Yes. I agree with that. But I also think that you still can figure, without victim blaming, you can figure out a way to say to men and women, when you're binge drinking, forget like social drinking, and that, I think, is part of the issue, is you have to be clear that you're only talking about the extremes. But when people are basically unconscious or stumbling around, all kinds of bad things happen. And you can say say that a thousand
4: times, but what you don't want to do is put in the subconscious of a lax bro we were both responsible because we were both drunk.
2: No, Steve. What if you make the, the argument all about... To, 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 you're not... What if you make the argument only to the men? Wait a minute. They were supposed Sorry, to be I got, soundproof isolation shit. <laughs> I didn't like seeing dad and dad fighting.
6: Um, <laughs> uh, let's
2: do this. Steve, wrap the convo. No, no, but this is germane, which is what if it was only to the men, which is stop, being, stop getting drunk and mistreating women, assuming Emily... Uh, confirms that in these chronic cases the men are drunk. If they're not and they're no just predators, then it doesn't.
3: Saying
1: it no, no, I'm no not
2: saying that.
3: No, it's the problem. That. I mean, I think it's more about women making themselves right. vulnerable to the predatory men. But I also think, you, th- right, So, but you're saying that we are supposed to withhold from women a piece of information that would make them safer because they can't handle it. No, that I'm saying that me. those, women two, have that those
4: w- one conversation does not crowd out the other, negate the other, and I think you need to segregate them radically so that they don't commingle in the minds of young people who now commit acts
1: you just with said the they don't crowd out each other so we can have other. the conversation because they don't crowd out each other. You can ha- you, when you send your daughter off to college, when I send my daughter off to college, I'm certainly going to have a conversation with her where I talk about the fact that getting severely drunk is something that is going to put you in positions you probably don't want to be in, and you have to be very thoughtful about it. That is a very reasonable thing to say, which is not blaming... Anybody for what later I may happens mis- to them,
4: David? I may have, mis- may have misunderstood you, but it sounded to me like you said that the conversation about campus sexual assault can't be had separately from alcohol, and that in fact alcohol deserves rhetorical priority in that conversation. Yeah. I disagree with that completely.
0: Okay, well maybe we could have
1: that conversation, but we could no longer have this conversation. This, you know what's so <laughs> great is Emily. I like. I love being on your side.
3: I know. That it's awesome. Right. What could we gang up? Against Thank John about?
1: Julian Emily stay there.
0: You know, I think why don't we do this? Do you guys want a shot? You were listening. Do you want you want a moment? You wanna say? You wanna opine?
6: I mean, I have nothing to say except as long as Emily's still sitting here and you seem to be the person who's, you know, speaking for the legal part of this argument, I see the utility of this law as a harm reduction strategy for that gray zone, right? But as you yourself said, and you will know the exact numbers better than me, the amount of men that occupy that gray zone is is pretty small, right? The amount of college men that are going around accidentally raping people because they don't understand what rape is. In fact, the, the, the real hardcore people that we're worried about could care less whether the consent Laws in place or not.
3: Yes, agreed. But maybe yes means yes will make sex better for lots of different people even when assault isn't what we're concerned about. I'm off mic. I'm in trouble. It's impossible to talk to Dana without going off mic. And my final point
0: would be rather than having laws that lead to conversations, I think our conversations should lead to laws. And that's one to grow on. All right, our next... Our next panel discussion will be about, broadly put, political TV. As you see, Julia's going to lead the discussion. Emily's going to be part. And then we'll get Dickerson and Dana down there to talk about this.
5: You guys needed to show a little more hustle coming off the bench. I want some speed. It was a little, it was a little pokey.
2: We, we were creating a sense of drama because this is the dramatic topic.
5: All right. All right.
2: <laughs> I want to move closer. All I can do is no, spin in this seat. we
5: discussed seat. that earlier.
2: If you had... I've, if I'd been here earlier, I would have known earlier, how the chair worked. I, I thought the, the chair... I didn't read the instructions. The John,
5: John arrived at 6.05 uh, this evening, so... Uh, He's, he's fresh off the plane. Um, we are talking tonight narrowly about Madam Secretary, a new show that you may or may not have heard of, and more broadly about the incredible wave, the massive crop of political t- shows on television right now. And it's a particularly opportune moment to do so because we have John Dickerson our chief political correspondent here to walk us through. Dana and I usually riff on political things with only Steve's unhingedness to, to pan us in, but now we have a reasonable, sober member. I'm, tr- I'm trying hard ish, not to be. Ish. A relatively sober member of the Washington establishment to walk us through. All right, so briefly, I'll just set up um, Madam Secretary. Uh, this is a show starring Taylor Leone as a fantasy Hillary Clinton. She's an incredibly warm, incredibly wise Secretary of State who's just kindly averting Benghazis by day and then going home and being a super awesome mom and sexy wife at night. Um, and it's uh, it's... It's a fantastical show. Um, it's the
4: Julia Turner story,
5: actually. <laughs> um, and I'm curious, let's, we'll, we'll get to the broader political conversation in a moment, but I want to start briefly just by asking you, John, um, what did you make of this portrayal of Washington?
2: Well, I'm a big uh, Talionic fan, so I had to get past that. Um, you know, compared to... So, in the pilot... First scene, I think they're at a dinner table conversation, and at some point she says, when, her, uh, when George um, says that he called their former boss, who turns out to be the president of the United States, she says, you called POTUS? And, I, and my skin got right up off my body and just ran out the room. <laughs> because no one talks like that. Not in Washington, not in anywhere. On
3: Veep. They talk that way on Veep.
2: <laughs> no, it's like, you called Slate." Editor Julia Turner? (laughs) Sounds! You guys don't say (laughs) that all the time. So that was... I thought, oh dear, we're in for a... This is House of Cards just has that piled on top of each other. I thought, oh God, we're just doomed. But then... There were two scenes that I thought were fantastic. At one point, first of all, they get the, it, the show gets the power relationship. I, what you say is true, which is like, you know, at one minute she's uh, like subduing uh, North Korean um, hordes at the door. The next she's whipping up an apple pie. And then, you know, the third she's helping with the Singapore method on her daughter's homework. And um, mucking out
5: a horse barn. Don't right, forget. and mucking out
2: the horse barn in the pigtails. And
5: charming braided pigtails. Right.
2: At the University of Virginia, which actually isn't the University of Virginia, but um, there are two scenes about power that, that they just totally nailed it. So the chief of staff, there's this back and forth with the chief of staff about power and who gets to see the president. She has a pre-existing relationship with the president, but the chief of staff is always the president's gatekeeper. And this is a well-worn Um, not a well-worn trope, but but this happens in every administration, so they they sort of get that correctly. There's at one point where the chief of staff is sort of belittling her, and he says, you know, this isn't going to be like a sleepover where everybody gets and puts themselves in pigtails. Like, ding, nailing the little gender attack, and the president just looks over and says, that's enough. Like, so he gets what the chief of staff is doing, just as a piece of of drama, that was beautifully done. I thought that little exchange, in terms of capturing the little side digs and, and um, cutting that goes on in conversation, I thought that was really nicely captured. Um, and there was one other moment which I can't remember at the moment, but I've been talking long enough, so <laughs> it doesn't
5: matter. All right, Dana, I'm curious what you made of this show as a Washington outsider,
6: right? Oh, uh, yeah. So I actually sort of enjoyed it in part because of the the somewhat campy element of, as you're saying, like a note that I made was something about somebody mentioning Erhard Burke, chairman of the Appropriations Committee, you know, just <laughs> tagging somebody's complete title onto every time you mention their name. There's no shorthand whatsoever in this world. But of course, that's also just part of being a pilot and establishing a show. I mean, to me, this show, Madam Secretary, fit in with this certain genre of TV about Washington that I guess would be like the West Wing. It isn't nearly as good as the West Wing, but it has a little bit of that kind of starchy, feel-good patriotism, and ultimately, unlike Veep and Scandal and other shows I hope we'll get to, it is a show that believes in Washington, right? It believes optimistically in the possibility of good governam- good governance. And, uh, and so that in itself makes it a little bit of a ridiculous object because of its sincerity. <laughs> but... But it also makes it some sort of endearing and fascinating to watch, and it has a lot of good performances in it. They're well, kind of they're out they're outclassing the dialogue, but not just Taileoni, but Zelkio Ivanek as the chairman, the chief of staff, and Keith Carradine as the president, and some really surprising casting: Tim Daly as the sexy Aquinas-quoting professor husband.
2: <laughs> yeah, although. He just gets a lot of bad lines. Like, I feel like some they need to kind of run his lines through the typewriter one more time because he's too good looking to have lines that are that dopey. Because
6: he's, like, <laughs> caressing his wife's cheek as he says, Socrates, put it this way, darling. Yes.
2: <laughs> exactly. That doesn't,
6: that doesn't happen to you've,
2: you? You've nailed it, yeah.
6: When that happens, you say
2: no. <laughs> um. also, also, wait, speaking of that... That weird discussion about sex and her masculine... Do you remember? In the I think it's in the pilot. So I think that points to the larger
5: sort of Fox News critique of this show, that it's all just a Hillary, um, a Trojan horse for Hillary, that liberal Hollywood has teamed up to put this, you know, beatific blonde secretary of state on television for a few years just to warm us all up to uh, get to the polls. This is clearly preposterous, right?
2: Well, I don't want to crowd out Emily, but it's preposterous on at least two fronts looks, I've been told, are sometimes play a bigger role in politics than maybe they should, they don't look the same. One is young, and one is a little bit older, and that's going to be something that's brought up in the undercurrent conversation, so they're not doing her any favors by doing that, if they were trying to make this a pro-Hillary thing. Secondly, in the second episode, it's about this attack on, a, on a, um, an embassy in Yemen, which doesn't do the president any favors either, because the president said his his ISIL program was going to create a situation where it would be like Yemen, where in the show Yemen is like a huge mess and they're bombing the um, embassy.
6: And the but show it, was called Another Benghazi. Yes, that and in the dialogue they say Benghazi.
2: Another Benghazi. And what she does that Secretary Clinton didn't do was like go around all the bureaucracy and protect the ambassador, which is totally the opposite of what happened right. in Benghazi. So you could argue that was actually written by somebody trying to undo Hillary Clinton.
3: So do producers, though, care about any of this? I mean, they're just trying to make good TV, right? And is DC really a gift for good television? I mean, people, House of Cards, super popular, acclaimed, Veep, completely different show, but, you know, has taken Washington as a subject of satire pretty seriously successfully I think Um, so I guess is on the other hand it seems to me that the better the show in some way the less it's going to resemble the really boring grinding reality of Washington DC so is that disconnect just part of the appeal naturally?
5: I mean, I think it's a good environment for television. You know, David did an interview as a Slate Plus segment for your guys' show with a few television writers a couple months ago where they pointed out that in Washington the stakes are high. Like, it's good to set a show in a hospital because people might die. It's good to set a show in a police force because people might get murdered. It's good to set a show in the White House because the fate of the world is on the line, and that's easier than, like, if you're running a cupcake shop. Um, and so, and you can do, you know, these shows, it's, it's funny to talk about these shows as a group because they work in so many different veins. Um, you know, some of them are these massive soap operas. Some of them are deeply cynical. I mean, when I look at these shows, I feel like you can sketch them all on a, on a matrix where people are either competent or incompetent. They fall somewhere on that spectrum. And then people slash Washington are either good or bad. And you kind of end up like Veep, the people are... Kind of good, if a little self-involved, but incompetent. In House of Cards, they are deeply incompetent and deeply... Or no, they're deeply competent, but deeply bad. Evil. Um, <laughs> oh, secret- yeah,
6: you're right. You can lay it out along yeah, the Scandal, Yeah,
5: Secret Scandal, the people it. are super competent and also very, very bad and evil at their core. West
3: Wing, competent and good.
5: Yeah, right? West Wing, competent and good. And this just kind of a funny combo where Ta Leone is competent and good, She's like a character from the West Wing sent
2: into the White House of Scandal. Like,
3: (laughs) undermined at every turn. Yeah.
2: I was, what did you, did you think it scanned the scene where she's in the church with the Russian attache and she basically you know, puts the screws to him and says, basically, the Secretary of State can deport anybody that they want to. You know, she ratchets up the pressure on him. Well, Did you find that that worked with her character? That, that scene, was
5: not a- so, so the background is that is that the Taylor character is a former CIA analyst, so she has these spy connections, and she's trying to achieve good in the world in the job, so she kind of circumvents the president and the chief of staff and whomever, and, and you know, she knows the right person to extract these Americans who are in where? A Syrian prison? Something like that. That scene, I actually thought that pulled it off, the hardball, but it made me wonder on the competence point, because I was like, seems like you haven't been a spy for a long time. You call up this guy who says he's been out of the game for like 12 years, and you trust him? He's like the one guy? You, it seemed
2: like maybe her networks were out of date. Maybe, it made me question <laughs> the, the competence point. She needed to send out one of those emails that said updating contacts.
3: <laughs> so, is there a problem with the limited number of moves these shows can make? I mean, we've seen the high-stakes drama also with homeland and 24 those are not exactly DC based but they're political drama you know to the nth degree is, is there just a problem of like running out of plot points that are going to feel fresh and surprising to us
6: I mean, I would adduce Veep in that regard as something that does something that none of these other shows are quite doing. The satire they may be doing, but something that Veep does that I think is so funny and so clever and in itself says so much about Washington and about politics in general is that the politics are completely elided in the show, right? right. we have we no never idea. see the president, right, who, who steps down, spoiler, and... The third season, I think, and she takes over. Um, and if anybody makes a political speech, right, a very important political speech, you, you might see them walking up to the podium and you'll see the reaction exactly afterwards, but you don't hear the actual content. So what that sort of says about the, the emptiness of political discourse seems, seems something new to me.
3: Uh-huh. Although that's so deeply cynical, it sometimes makes me feel like a little like I have to take a shower. After Veep like is so
6: deeply cynical that it is not for everyone and I can only take it in small doses, yeah, but it's yeah, very, yeah. very funny.
2: My recollection of Yes Minster was that the, there's a lot of great stuff to mine in the petty behavior of people where it's like what they say about faculty fights, right? They're so violent because the stakes are so low. Um, that, <laughs> right. that for people who are just, and that's why the vice president's office is interesting because they're basically not in the game. But you want, like, to grab your one nanosecond in the refracted light of somebody who is in the game, you will scratch and claw and and do all kinds of Baroque uh, stratagems to get yourself in that moment. And that that can provide years of excitement, as opposed to the Madam Secretary, where, I mean, so far she has extracted two kids who were caught by the Syrians. She's protected... Spoiler um,
3: alert!
5: I mean... It's It's not that good a show.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. uh,
2: I'm glad. I'm I'm sorry. I did not ask their consent to give them the plot. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and she does all these amazing things. We're only in the second show. So she's going to run out of, they're going to run out of countries. No, I
5: I hear WikiLeaks is episode three, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right. So (laughs)
2: then where are they going to be by episode 12?
5: Yeah. All right. One final question, because the looming specter of Mike Pesca tells me that he's no longer soon going to give us consent to continue this episode, or this segment. Does our interest in these shows mean fundamentally that we are ensorcelled by Washington, deeply frustrated by them, or is it, does it have nothing to do with Washington? Did you just say ensorcelled? <laughs> Sure did, Steve. What did she say? I, I actually,
6: Are we ensorcelled by Washington? I need to know in what in that means. That's, a,
1: that's like a, that's <laughs> a like culture. A that's think, like some culture fest thing they're pulling out just to try I to make you look stupid. It at all. Don't play their game. Don't play their game,
2: John.
5: <laughs> Stop dodging I the feel, question. I
2: feel like I had insourceled ones in college in Daytona Beach.
3: <laughs> I think it might be irrelevant. I don't. I don't It feels like the country is not necessarily in this world of being intimately concerned about daily doings in Washington. In fact, maybe we'd be better off if we were paying a little bit more attention. Maybe the TV shows are using up our interest in D.C. and then we don't have enough left for the reality of
6: it.
5: It's all Olivia Pope's fault. All right. Well, I mean, but
6: Washington is just such a play of surfaces that I think there will never not be some interest in knowing, imagining, fantasizing about what goes on behind the scenes, right? Whether it's Olivia Pope shenanigans or West Wing uprightness, you kind of want to know, all right, behind the closed doors of the Oval Office, the cabinet, whatever, what are they actually saying? What's the nitty-gritty? And, well, House of Cards is one show that really tries to... Get those fantasies.
2: Right, and then just totally makes them up. I mean, they're just not within 100 miles of what actually happens. So it's you want to imagine what you imagine would happen. I mean, not what actually happens. Because what actually happens is really boring. Somebody once told me about war films, a a person who had served in both Afghanistan and Iraq. They said what you don't get in any war film is is that most of your day is spent in crushing boredom. Where nothing happens And then it's punctuated by mayhem and chaos And in war movies, it's constant chaos, constant action sc- Crammed into two hours a, And he said that doesn't replicate the experience at all And that's kind of like Washington
5: Yeah, I think it's a fantasy of excitement and confidence And we'll probably all keep watching Thanks, guys Good
0: job John and Dana, stay So So David Plotz knows how to play Process of Elimination. He knows he's on the next panel, in fact, leading it. Let's get Metcalf there. If you really want a boring war film, the Thin Red Line really works. Lots of shots of trees, really quite boring. It's really a great corrective. Yeah. (laughs) This topic will be... Well, Plotz, you take it away.
1: Well, just before we start, the, the one thing I thought was weird about Madam Secretary in the pilot, which is the only episode I saw, is that the great achievement she has the thing that we're supposed to laud her for is paying a ransom to terrorists to get Americans out, which is, like, I thought that's a weird thing to celebrate a Secretary of State for paying off terrorists to uh, get Americans but out. But
6: doesn't she, maybe I'm remembering this plot point wrong, but doesn't she insist that the ransom be paid in yeah, it's, food aid or yeah, something like that? Yeah, but
1: that's always they always have that bullshit in there. It's not, <laughs> anyway...
0: This podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than just the latest evolution. Rather, it's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy. Its power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go. It's changing the way wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromising design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com slash TLX, or better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer.
1: All right, so do we have any programmers in the house? Any programmers in the house tonight? Yeah, I bet you're here. Okay. The topic for discussion now is, is Silicon Valley ruining America?
2: You know, it it occurs to me. (laughs) It occurs to me that since we come from Washington and everybody asks that about us in Washington, this is some sort of weird passive aggressive attempt on our part. Yeah. No. We don't do this, by the way, when we go to West Lafayette. Is West Lafayette yeah. ruining America?
1: It's, uh, no, this is aggressive aggressive, not passive aggressive. So I want to lay out. Um, four general critiques and then we can discuss because I think that that question is a big question. So I think there are four the four disappointments with Silicon Valley that I've seen expressed is one the general isms of Silicon Valley the the programmer sexism the ageism and the racism the fact that uh that it's a, also a place which pretends or believes itself to be wholly meritocratic and thus reinforces its own stereotypes and own, it, you know, it, it recreates itself in its own image day after day because it believes always that it is uplifting the smartest, the best, and those happen to be white guys. Um, not that I don't think white guys are great. The second one is just the kind of out of touch one percentism that we see. There's something deeply unattractive about the, the lordly, entitled manner of this new elite that are designing products to help 24-year-old boys, proposing laws that will serve themselves, but with a veneer that they're really trying to save the world. That's a second criticism. The third is this idea that it's, everything's about disruption, and disruption is in many cases, a way of circumventing protections for regular workers. So if you think about some of the very popular home cleaning services or ride-sharing services, those are ways of, of circumventing regulated economies with unregulated economies where, you can, where workers perhaps have much less, uh, a much more tenuous relationship with, with what they're doing. Um, and fourth, just the smug evangelism of it all. This, this idea that if you're not disrupting, you're really not living is irritating. So I would throw, am I missing, are there any kind of thing, criticisms of Silicon Valley that I have missed that are big ones? Dana?
6: Well, I mean, maybe this is related to your regulations question, but the, the failure to provide a tax base, right, that a lot of these services, because they're under the law, are also just not giving back to the community in the form of taxes.
1: All right, that's a good one. Steve, you're, you look uh, ready, to, ready to roll there.
4: Business casual.
1: <laughs> I don't think Silicon Valley can be held responsible for that. Do you think that's a Silicon Valley responsibility? I'm going to
4: hurl it at it as a baseless stereotype.
1: All right, John. Are there any any other?
2: No, I don't think so. I think you've covered the the waterfront or the bay, as it may be.
1: Okay, so Steve, you are you are a great student of the 1980s and the rise of, in particular, the rise of. Uh, In the 1980s, we saw something quite similar, I think, with the finance industry and with Wall Street, the same kind of valorization, the same centrality to the culture. Isn't it perfectly clear that Silicon Valley, as a a cultural ideal, is vastly superior to that one?
4: So the culture of Silicon Valley is vastly superior to the 1980s culture of finance that produced the junk bond and began the process of producing the one percenter class on the massive inequality. Yeah, I mean, there, there are huge positive externalities and positive internalities to technology. I mean, imagine if in 1940 you tried to have a conversation about is Detroit ruining America, right? Let's acknowledge what part of that conversation would be preposterous. You are not going to stay the quote-unquote progress that is the automobile. In 1940, I think two-thirds of the country did not own a car. So... Certainly, the possibility was there to have a serious conversation about how we would adopt it, but not if we would adopt it. So, you know, did the car make the world better? You know, it made us more meritocratic, more open, more mobile. Would we have, looking back 50, 60 years, would we have developed it exactly as we did, with exactly the subsidies and incentives that we did? I would say probably not. So the progress is going to happen. The question is, do we impose upon a community that has a very highly developed and idiosyncratic internal dialogue about itself, something extrinsic and controlling in the same way maybe we wish we had asked for something other than the national highway system, and if so, how are we going to get in their heads to uh, make them agree to listen to it? Uh, It's also important to understand, I think, that one strength of the country is that we're several discrete power centers, one of which is the Washington, D.C., you know, as fantasized by Madam Secretary and otherwise, one of which is Silicon Valley, one of which is the oil business, one of which is Wall Street. And at their moment of most arrogant boom, they take themselves to be a universal template, and there are great resistant powers to universal templates um, in America. So ironically, there's a kind of native libertarian rejectionist streak that will, by which the rest of the country, I think, will say to Tech... No, you can't, you can't simply impose upon all of us this universal paradigm for behavior.
1: But it's a lot better than the one in Washington. It's a lot better than the one in New York. It's a lot better than the oil industry paradigm. It has the kind of hubris and cultish idealism that is annoying, but in general... Is that
4: C-O-L-T-I-S-H or C-U-L-T-I-S-H? <laughs>
1: I can't spell that quickly. I've had two beers.
4: I love the idea that it was a
1: cultish thing.
6: <laughs> Impetuous and cultish. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like the best qualified people in this room to answer this question are billionaires.
1: <laughs> no. I
2: mean, no. This. Yeah, we like to know because they come the, to your they're town in and it. tell you
1: what to think. We're at, we're external to it. We're here to pass judgment on them. <laughs> so
2: let's pass some judgment. I want to know: Are there any billionaires in the house? Because <laughs> we could, you know, because like, like in their pocket change, we could be doing GabFest forever. I'm just thinking it might do a little business for us. Sorry. But wait, 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 wait. I want to push
4: back a little bit. Let's say, one of, let's say inequality and globalization are huge issues that demand some kind of a public policy or social response, right? Are we really going to, because there are all of these incredibly positive things about technology, we really going to give in to the idea that Silicon Valley offers a, you know, a solution to such problems that they themselves are causing,
2: I find that implausible. I feel like they're gonna, it's going to self-correct. If you iterate, so you get, you're in a bad patch now, but we've already seen in some of these 1099 companies that they've decided that purely hiring contractors doesn't work. Some of them now are bringing employees that would have been contracted out in other kinds of operations or bringing them in, giving them benefits, deciding that the benefit you get in uh, customer service from having people work under you is better than the problems you create and the money you save and labor cost by just having a lot of 1099 contractors out there. And that's a pretty fast iteration. And so that this may be a problem now, but that there will be self-correction pretty soon and that, it, and that disruption in general, one place that could stand to be disrupted is Washington. And so, like, saying disruption is bad, we don't want that. We want, we want disruption in the hopes that it comes and fixes the sclerosis in places like Washington and maybe even in Wall Street. I mean, in the places that have, that have resisted change and improvement, um, it's good to have an entire place, maybe with some behaviors that aren't, perfect, but an entire place that thinks about stuff that's stuck and how to fix it and go around it.
1: Dana, Dana, you're a West Coast person who's on the East Coast. You, you know, I think I certainly as an East Coaster often feel like we're living sort of in the shadow of the West Coast now. The, 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 so much of the... Yeah. <laughs> you you found
4: the room (laughs) it took him a while so
1: much of of the the kind of most interesting conversation about what's going on in America comes out of this area of the country do we have, do you think that we're suffering from a a kind of sadness or or resentment of what is happening out here or, or no?
6: I mean this may not be answering that question exactly but I just I feel like this whole conversation I really do feel like at some point we should send it out to the audience because we're painting a very complex industry with a very broad brush right and it does sort of seem like unless you're here where this is all happening or you're you know in China at Foxconn building iPhones it's you're mainly seeing the, the trickle down you're mainly seeing sort of the good part of all this right you're getting to use the fun apps or the great machines and you're kind of seeing the creative disruptors who get profiled in magazines and you're not necessarily seeing the local economies that are being disrupted, you know, the jobs that are leaving, the apartments that are unaffordable, all of that stuff is happening kind of on the ground, you know, and it's, it's something that, it's, it's, I can't remember now which writer, somebody that we were reading in preparation for this segment, I think it was Rebecca Solnit, maybe, called this neocolonialism, right? <laughs> she gets a round of applause, yeah, Rebecca Solnit. Yeah, I think this was her word, neocolonialism, you know, that there's something going on that has to do with these young, transient Operatives, you know, coming in and making a lot of money and creating these things that everybody wants or everybody thinks they want for a little while. And, and in the meantime, the, the tax base of where they live has been eviscerated and you know, people's lives are changing radically. And all of that stuff does sort of seem like you have to think local in order to see it happening. Does that have anything to do with your question?
2: So you're saying we should know something about what's going on before we talk about it. <laughs> You are disrupting the hell out of this show. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, I want to ask you a question. So, two different questions. One is, do you think that there, it seems to me, there are two two models, and Steve Jobs didn't get to live out uh, his life to see whether he would have ended in this way, but you had Steve Jobs, who made money, who was involved, at least at some level, in collusion to keep wages low, who was involved, at least in some level, with the tax practices of Apple, which keep the money from going back into the U.S. Treasury, and who didn't ultimately turn to uh, a life of charity that, say, Bill Gates did? Do you think that's the model, or do you think you have somebody like Bill Gates who's worth $60 billion, who spends his whole life making money, learning to be disruptive, and then says, okay, now I'm going to go spend the bulk of the rest of my time using all those skills I've honed and all that perception and all that money I've amassed to go do vast, great, you know, continent-changing events in the world. And so don't bother me while I'm doing my 30 to 40 years of learning and amassing because I'm going to go change the world much more than I ever could have if I'd been trying to do both at the same time.
4: If I could jump in. I mean, I think that that's the important distinction, right? You ask of a friend who's constantly on their iPhone, you know, have they crossed the line from... Normal social behavior into something profoundly antisocial. You don't defend them by saying that we all look at smartphones frequently, right? I mean, you ask whether or not the use of technology is embedded within something like a normal, intimate, face to face social existence. Similarly, you ask of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates whether or not their conception of a kind of libertarianism that's necessary for a culture of innovation is itself embedded within a good society or some kind of vision of a good society that might be supplied from another paradigm, right? I mean, isn't that the difference between Jobs and Gates? Jobs totally evangelizes and universalizes, and Gates, I I can't speak for him, surprisingly, but he, you know, applied those evangelical principles to creating a product, but did not universalize from them to all norms of human behavior or social goodness,
1: I mean, can't we have both of those? I mean, it's not—it's clearly not an either-or. We do have both models, right? Within within it.
4: Well, but what, I mean, what is the attraction to disruption and pricing one's labor to market on an ongoing basis? You're talking about, admittedly, some of the people with the highest aptitude in the world applying it for, you know, socially utilitarian purposes. The problem is there's a lack of understanding on the part of those people for people who do not have the bundle of competencies that they have and what happens when those people who don't have those competencies are forced to take on an ongoing basis their talents you know, which may be meager for nature or nurture reasons to market and find them massively underpriced and undercut because of a global economy you know, we're not going to begin an ethical dialogue about what to do with redundant human beings in terms of the workforce by applying only an evangelical libertarian standard
1: to that dialogue. The... All right, we're redundant. we're redundant human beings now, Mike. Guys, I'm not
0: shutting you up. I'm engaging in erudite panel discussion disruption. <laughs> you guys want to pop off? You got, a, you got a thought?
3: We were just sitting back here wondering why you left privacy out of the conversation I will speak as a slightly bemused or resentful East Coaster. I worry a lot about how much of the business model of at least some of the big Silicon Valley companies is predicated on all of us users giving up our privacy in a way that we haven't fully grappled yet with the implications. And I know that, you know, now we have Apple has this new iPhone that's supposed to be all cryptography up, so that suddenly the government can't get access um, to our data. But the
2: however, TMZ can still get pretty much whatever they want.
3: <laughs> right, and the companies still have it in our marketing um, and and using it as their main source of revenue, um, a way of attracting advertisements. And I feel like that needs to be part of the conversation. I wouldn't.
1: I wouldn't have it. said that Silicon Valley is the great criminal when it comes to privacy violations in this country recently.
2: You mean there are greater criminals?
1: Yeah, they're like our government.
3: Yeah, but the reason all this data is there for our government to collect is that we are giving it so freely to all of these services. They're, they're not unrelated problems.
0: All right. So what we're going to do now, we're going to play Dictionary, the classic party game Dictionary, in but a moment you guys can convene back to the high chairs if you want. And now, the spiel. So, I was... I I was going to San Francisco, and of course, I had to think of this song, If You're Going to San Francisco. Do you know this horror show? This abomination of lyrics and melody? Written by John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, sung by Scott McKenzie, it reached number four in the Billboard Hot 100. Here's something that Wikipedia says, the single is purported to have sold over seven million copies worldwide. I guess they couldn't count that accurately back then. And it also says, the song is credited with bringing thousands of young people to San Francisco, California during the late 60s. I'd have gone with the drugs first. Maybe drugs, free love, then the... Well, drugs, free love, a message of social justice. Well, drugs, free love, message of social justice, other better bands singing other better songs, then other different drugs, and then maybe the drugs, and then maybe that song brought people to San Francisco. But what this song brings to mind to me is the albatross, the yoke of having a totally unloved and totally pointless municipal anthem, an unasked for municipal anthem. Now some cities have anthems, I mean, I'm from New York, obviously we have a number of good songs, in fact, so many songs about New York that each month in New York gets its own song, I like New York in June, how about you, specific Parts of New York get their own song. The sidewalks of New York get their own song. But if you go down the list, as I have, of the top ten metropolitan areas in the United States, you find that some have, been, have had unwanted municipal anthems thrust upon them. I count Los Angeles, the Randy Newman song, I Love L.A. And you have to sing that if you're in Los Angeles and when the Dodgers win, they sing it. But you know what? In L.A., they don't really love L.A. It's way too cheery a song for what the locals actually think. Now, if we go to the third most populous um, city or municipal area in the United States, Chicago, Naperville, Elgin, some parts of Wisconsin... You have Chicago Lots of great songs about Chicago My kind of town, Chicago is But then you have, perhaps by now An unwanted municipal anthem I'm thinking of the song Toddlin' Town Not so much the anthem Not so much the song, not that bad Really just one line in the song
6: I saw a man, he danced with his wife In Chicago, Chicago.
0: I saw a man, he danced with his wife This is notable somehow I saw a guy, he was combing his hair in Chicago. I saw a fellow walking with two feet. That's so specific to Chicago. The fourth and fifth biggest municipal areas are Houston and Dallas, and they don't actually have their own city songs, but I've been to a number of uh, Texas Rangers games, and they do a little of this in Houston, too. They sing the... <laughs> deep in the heart of Texas. Of course... You could always zing them with this a little bit, like um, by noting that on Friday a federal court upheld a pretty draconian law which says that if doctors don't have admitting privileges, they can't perform abortions. So this means that for many, many people, they've shut down most abortion clinics, and it will take you six, seven hours to drive to get proper medical care if you want an abortion, and if you're living (laughs) deep in the heart of Texas... Washington, D.C. lacks a song. Stephen Merritt of of Magnetic Fields wrote one. It's cute. Philadelphia has Philadelphia Freedom. That's pretty good. Miami has some songs. Really, the one that really stands out on the list is lacking any sort of anthem is Atlanta. Not a lot of good things rhyme with Atlanta. Atlanta, Atlanta, we're given to drawing out our banter. Atlanta, Atlanta, this song is best sung by a cantor. It doesn't really work. The 10th biggest municipal statistical area and the songs about it is Boston, and Boston has this great song by the Standells, which is really great, and in many ways, the mirror image to I Love L.A. Let's hear a little of that. they have a beautiful city but they hate it. In Boston they're acknowledging the decrepitude of their town but they love it. It really does speak to the Boston character. And so now we land on the 11th biggest metropolitan statistical area. It is San Francisco. They have this horrible hippie dreck. But luckily, what does San Francisco have in its favor? It has the quintessential municipal anthem, first sung in 1961 at the Fairmont Hotel, not a mile from this venue. It is, of course, I left my heart in San Francisco. And it's the sort of thing that you could sing at a ballgame or you could sing to each other. And it not, wasn't originally recorded by Tony, Tony Bennett, but just hearing it makes you feel warm, unlike San Francisco. But it, but you'll understand the appeal. So if we could go out on a little of that song. When I come home to you, San Francisco, sing it, Tony. Your golden sun. If you're going to San Francisco, let this be the song in your heart. All right, thanks. Let's play a little dictionary. So what we're gonna do, let me cast this game. Let's have our first contestants be Emily versus Dana. You guys stay on the chairs. Everyone else come down on the small ones. In your little pads, one will have a definition of a word and one will, and four of them, I believe, will be blank. If you could all open your pads, please do not let the contestants behind you see if your pads have any words on it. The definition, so we're trying to bluff the panelists who are playing behind us. Three will have fake definitions. One will read the real definition. We'll see who scores better on this game. The definition that we're trying to do is the word paridolia, Pari Idolia.:
5: Can we get a spelling? P a
0: r e. No. Yes. P a r e i d o l i a. P a r e i d o l i a. P a r e i d o l i a. Now, Julia, okay. that could have been an amazing bluff. It could have been written on your pad, right? That's why you were doing it. <laughs> We've never played poker. Excellent.
5: I'll never or tell. Or
0: another amazing bluff could be someone saying, "Mike, I can't read your writing." That could be an amazing <laughs> bluff. When you are ready, just go ding. Are we ready? Ding. Metcalf, you ready?
1: Dickerson? Klotz? I'm ready. I'm ready, Chief. Alright. No, I'm still reading this definition you wrote in here. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Julia, you could start. You're ready.
5: Para the state of achieving perfect equilibrium as in a body of water.
4: Para a type of illusion involving a vague object seeming clear.
6: <laughs> that that basically describes Steve's contributions in many Gapfests.
3: <laughs> he cued it I was, up.
4: I was wondering who would be lazy enough
2: to walk through that open door. <laughs> Thank you, Dana.
3: She knows you too well.
2: I think we should all have a moment of silence after that. That was... Uh, Peridolia, the musical sound made by the newly opened periflower of East Anglia.
3: Wait, John, you got to say that again. That was too fast. We didn't get that.
2: I was overwhelmed by the possible joke option, so I'll just read the definition as it was written in the book for me, as it is written in the, the heart of my soul. Uh, the musical sound made by the newly opened periflower of East Anglia. Peridolia, the quality of not being able to decide which
1: gab fest you like better. Boy, those dictionaries are getting very specific yeah. They are, it's crazy It's all that online and that stuff traces
3: to the Okay, Greece.
0: let's see what our contestants are going to guess Emily, who do you think has the correct definition of pariidolia?
3: I'm going to go with Julia Something about water
0: Something about water Dana, who do you think has the best definition of pariidolia? I think it's going to be Steve Alright, will the
2: real person Wait, who co- yes. you, do, are we going to get them in the mix? Oh yeah, 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 good, okay Clap for Julia I was disruptive, that was disruption Good job then. See, you come, it comes on you when you're in the area code Yeah, you're an audience engagement app
0: Julia, who thinks Julia's, uh, read it, read your definition again
5: Paraidolia, the state of achieving perfect equilibrium as in a body of water You think that's
0: right? <clears throat> Stephen Metcalf
4: Paraidolia, pretend handwriting as part of a bluffing strategy <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry a type Poker face A type of illusion Involving a vague object Seeming clear You
2: think he's right? <laughs> Dickerson <laughs> Peridolia The musical sound Made by the newly opened Perry flower of East Anglia
0: Oh do we have to bother pl- uh, Clap if you like pandas I don't remember
2: what mine was <laughs>
0: Dana Stevens gets the point. Steven Metcalf had the correct definition. Alright. Now, our next players, you guys come down. Let's send Plots up there and let's well, we plots and Metcalf have been uh, back there enough. Let's send John and Metcalf back there. This word is snek, Sneck S-N-E-C-K. Sneck. I nailed the definition of that. I nailed the pronunciation of that one.
2: Is my favorite Dr. Zeus character?
0: Sneck. All right. Let's start with plots this time.
1: Sneck. a dry cake often containing poppy seeds originating in Austria.
6: Snack. That's <laughs> good. Dana. Sneck. a latch or lock.
1: Ooh.
4: Snek. Wait, 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 I I need that again. A, la- a, latch a latch or lock. Or
3: lock. Latch or lock.
2: Latch or a lock?
3: Snack, a kiss that makes a noise, a synonym for a zerbert.
2: <laughs> do, don't worry you don't need to hear that one <laughs> <laughs> Serber, so
5: frequently in dictionary definitions um, snack a mechanical fixing used to adjoin like parts all right I'm going to go to you John Dickerson
0: who do you think has the correct definition shouldn't you, S- get,
2: shouldn't you get the audience first first
0: no. let's do second right. Okay,
2: your show uh, yeah d- uh, c- uh, could, d- David could you read yours again because we couldn't hear it very well of course
1: it's not mine. It's Merriam-Webster's. Nice. A dry cake, often containing poppy seeds, originating in Austria.
2: In Austria? <laughs> I yes. was with him until
3: he got, got to Austria. Austria. I just or read like, it. Come in he gilded Shit. the
4: snack.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and a latch or a lock? They're two totally different things. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Imagine that. Uh,
2: and yet... and yet they're snack worthy
3: (laughs) there's
4: something so crushingly unoriginal about saying a latch or a lock in a game of dictionary is it like are you double bluffing me girl
6: (laughs) it's a periodolia Steve yeah
0: (laughs) all right I'll say Julia Turner
5: (laughs) all right he
0: went with Julia's which was uh, I don't know the last one was the lake process of
2: (laughs) elimination (laughs)
5: You want me to read it again? Yeah, read again. Snack, a mechanical fixing used to adjoin like parts.
0: Like part fixing. What do you think? What do you think, Metcalf?
4: I, I'm, I'm, I mean, Dana got in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the Hall of Mirrors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you are totally snick.
0: She, she snicked me so bad. I'm going to say Dana. All right. Audience, who thinks it's Julia's? Who thinks it's Emily's kiss? <laughs> <laughs> who thinks it's Thanks. Dana's lacquer launch for the nutty we And who thinks it's Plot's? Is? Yeah. It is Dana's. A snack is a latch <laughs> or a lock. <laughs> All right. Do you know how the last one goes? No. The last
1: one. You,
2: you guys stay.
0: Can we stay. So in the first round... Dana got it right. You guessed correctly. One point for culture. Yeah, she's in the second round. Dickerson, did you get it right there? I haven't
2: gotten. I haven't been within a mile of of anything right.
0: Metcalf got got it right. Also,
3: Dana should get a point because it was her.
0: Two for. So the culture guys have gotten both of them right. However, during the regular round. The political gab fast was up three nothing. So now it's three to two.
2: And but, the last one is worth two points. So it's all based on this. And don't you get a, some points for being the most specially wrong? <laughs> I'm trying to be
0: going for that one. Whatever all right, I, here.
2: I think for this one we're gonna get a pronunciation help. And iron.
0: And iron.
2: And iron.
0: And iron. And iron.
2: And iron.
0: And iron. So and iron. So what we're saying is and iron. How do you spell this?
6: A and D I R O N. A
0: N D I R O N. Oh, do you mean
2: and iron?
0: <laughs> yes. And iron. And iron? <laughs> John's spinning complacently.
1: Julia, what's it like being the editor?
0: I was told we could take questions, but I know the first question would be... It's fun so far. What does And Iron mean? All right. Can I go first? Is everyone ready? Are you checked in? You know, the good thing about 70s game shows is those uh, theme songs never get old, right?
2: John. What's the definition of and iron? A decorative device used to hold logs in a fireplace. And iron. Dana, what do you think?
6: A tool used for welding and metallurgy.
2: What do you think, Emily?
3: And iron, a metal support that holds wood in a fireplace. Wait a
0: minute. <laughs> Boo! Boo!
5: Oh no, this is fun. This makes it fun. Metcalf, what do you think?
4: And iron. A host inexplicably picking a common word that people
2: generally know.
4: For a very public game of dictionary. (laughs) And iron. All right,
5: wait, but no, no, this is good. This is good, because obviously David and I both know what an and iron is. Yeah. But now we have to pick whose definition is in proper dictionaries and who is making it up. And which person confronted with knowing the word but not having it written down would write it. So I want to hear Emily's again and Dickerson's again.
1: Uh
0: All right. We're playing guess who screwed up the game besides me.
2: (laughs) Okay, so I'll do andirons. A person who takes parlor games extremely seriously. (laughs) (laughs) A decorative device used to hold logs in a fireplace.
0: What do you think? Plots.
2: I want to hear Emily. Yeah.
3: Andiron, a metal support that holds wood in a fireplace.
1: Yeah.
0: So what do you think was the dictionary definition, and who just thought of it?
1: Can we, can, because... It doesn't my, isn't my answer going to infect hers? Do you, have you reached your answer independently?
5: I know what my answer is. Well, well effect, if we have really what, thought what, about this we, globally. Wait, I don't wait, wait, know wait. wait effect? Effect? Shouldn't we? Let's, yeah,
2: close our eyes and point.
5: Okay, ready? One, two, three.
2: <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> Always go with the new editor. <laughs> and the answer is, is... Something the audience should weigh in first before we reveal Good it. job. Wow. <laughs> who do you think... Here, who, I'm just going to give my theory. Decorative...
1: It doesn't have to be decorative. That's an unnecessary word. I don't think that would make it into a de- there was something about, definition.
5: But there was something about holds wood that didn't sound like dictionary. I
1: know, but also John's eagerness to go. I don't, John Wait, was my, eager what? to do it to what? score points knowing he didn't have the Wait, real what definition. Did you,
2: what was that word you just used? My what? My eagerness to go. Oh. <laughs>
1: what do you think I said?
2: I don't know. I thought you were pulling out one of those words they use on the culture gap fest. <laughs> oh, it's the old eagerness to All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, clearly his poetry was will, better than Emily Dickinson Will the
0: pre-designated bluffer Please reveal himself or herself wait
2: the, wait, wait, get- wait, the audience has to participate
0: Oh, you guys are really into this, huh?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> was Emily the pre-designated bluffer? Did I load her pad up? <laughs> Woo! Was John Dickerson the pre-designated bluffer? That's about evenly split A little more think Emily, I think And the answer is... Emily was the pre-designated bluffer. Thank you all. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for playing a game. The next next word is car. Car. (laughs) (laughs) Is that spelled with a Z? (laughs) Car. That brings us to the end of the first ever live Superfest. Our producer here in San Francisco is Ann Hepperman. Holding down the fort in Washington, D.C. is producer Mike Volo. Our interns are Josephine Livingston and Max Tawney. Thanks also to Jack Beck, to Erin Bergen, Shannon Hansen, and Lindsay Nelson. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, Stephen Metcalf, David Plotz... Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Mike Pesca. We will talk to you soon. Your name is? I'm Margo. Hi, Margo. What's your question?
2: So, I lived in San Francisco, but I just moved to Oakland and. <laughs> I like nice coffee shops and other things, so I'm basically part of the gentrifying force of Oakland, I think. And so I wondered if you guys could morally evaluate me and <laughs> what I should be doing to compensate for this. Yeah, offsets of some sort? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's David's... Uh, quick moral judgments, it's David's ballywick. He's our Old Testament god. <laughs>
1: I don't we had a we had a live show here last year and we had a long discussion about this question. I don't think you have anything to apologize for as a gentrifier. I think there are obviously major issues with inequality in San Francisco as there are in Oakland as there are in every city, but in general creating dense urban cities where people are living close together and there's it creates more prosperity and it the trickle down does not trickle down nearly quickly enough and it doesn't Trickle to everyone, and people are pushed out. But the, I think the overall benefit to both the, in, the specific urban economy that is the Bay Area's, and then to the economy as a whole, is significant. And so you shouldn't you shouldn't feel bad, and you should uh, you should enjoy your only highly slightly above market rent.
5: Shouldn't they? Shouldn't she like um, you know become politically involved and agitate for the election of people who will enact policies that will help address inequality and in other matters? Or should she just, like, buy coffee?
0: Julia, shouldn't you shouldn't be singing do that, It Had Julia? to Be You or some other torch song <laughs> in that post? No, I
5: know.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> now the fabulous baker boy. piano? <laughs> all right, we have another question here. Go ahead.
1: Hi, so, uh, what's your name? Uh, my name's Jude, and I'm another Oakland resident because I can't oh, live in this oh, city because it costs too much money. Um, it's almost harvest season here in Northern California, and I'd like the panel to comment on potential federal uh, legality of marijuana in the very near future?
5: That sounds political.
3: (laughs) The potential federal legality, as in will the federal government recognize the state marijuana laws that are passing? I think eventually the federal government will do that, but it's going to take... A while, probably longer than it should. The science is on the side of states like yours, um, and that should be the deciding factor. But for Congress to get its act together and really mess around with the Controlled Substances Act, which currently treats marijuana as you know a very um, serious drug, that's a major step for Congress to take. And there are a lot of you know different political forces in play that don't necessarily occur state by state. So I don't. I think. The, the positive laboratory of democracy argument is that this is a good way to make change across the country. We'll see, you know, if Colorado and Washington State and you guys can handle legal marijuana and then take it piece by piece, and then the federal government will come in pretty late in the game, is my guess.
2: Don't you mean hydroponic laboratories of democracy?
3: Sure, yes.
2: Um, so how long do you think that'll take? 20 years? Well,
3: that's a good question. No, I would say more like 10, but I have no idea.
2: So who's the... 10, let's think. Ten. You won't have anybody do it in 16. Would you have somebody in 2020 who would come out as a presidential candidate, a serious presidential candidate come out in support of nationalized... Yes, as oil?
3: long as the state-by-state state experiments are going fine, right. especially if they're bringing in real tax revenue.
0: Rand Paul would do that now, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
6: yeah. All right, are good. Right.
3: What would not going
6: fine mean? I mean, what
3: what what would be the serious rates of teenage use going up, and some really high-profile disastrous overdoses, or you know, there have there have been a couple, a few incidents of people becoming more fish
0: albums. All right. (laughs) What's your name? Where you from?
3: Hi, um, my name is Megan. I'm from San Francisco. Um, and I know that Silicon Valley loves to think about how it's helping the world, and in some ways that's infuriating because it's, it's uh, so focused on designing for young 20-year-old males. But I'm wondering what can be done in technology to change that design space and to focus on the developing world or places where technology is not
2: necessarily having the impact that it could have.
0: Steve, you want to just define andiron again? <laughs>
5: <laughs> I mean, I don't have a good answer to any of you guys. I feel like, you know, one of, one of the things that you run up against with that question is the media coverage of Silicon Valley, which is everybody, you know, a certain class of people who have iPhones who are reading about other things that they can do on their iPhones and the depredations of the iPhones and the things to worry about with their iPhones. You know, there are, there are technological innovations happening in the developing world. They just don't necessarily make it onto the cover of Wired, I think. Um, but should more resources be directed there? Yes. How do you do that? I don't know.
1: I mean, what do you mean? Should more resources be directed there? Who is directing them? How does that work? Is it is this something that works without it being a pure profit motive? Because if you look at in places in in Kenya, for example, has a really really well developed mobile banking system, which developed because it was highly profitable for people to do it. It, made, it was a real economic efficiency for people. And so so if you look at the rates of banking in in uh, Kenya, they are. Up and use of mobile banking is really high because someone saw the value there. Is there something that people here have to do out of the goodness of their heart or it's just like looking for profit motive and maybe looking in places they hadn't seen it for profit motive?
5: I feel like people who are looking for profit motives look all over the place for profit motives. I don't think you need to nudge them to look. All right, let's
0: go one last question. Um, What's your name? Mark Harris. Hi, uh, I live here in the city. Um, (laughs) Uh,
2: So the California uh, affirmative consent law does seem to be an odd way to go about encouraging a conversation about enthusiastic and happy sex among people, but I was hoping maybe you could speculate about what kinds of, I don't know, public policy initiatives or cultural uh, interventions we could have so that actually we could, as a culture, move toward Better, more enthusiastic, and consensual sex?
3: So, there is some good research about bystander intervention, which is emphasizing positive messages, trying to get people to college, college students to see that there are steps they can take to divert a sexual encounter going awry if they're worried about someone in the moment. Um, and there's some evidence that that is changing attitudes on campuses. We're not yet seeing a decline in the number of assaults on schools using that, but since it's pretty new, maybe we just have to give it a little time. Um, and that seems to be, right now, the research is showing, the most promising kind of program.
1: It seems to me like people are having lots of sex. They're having a lot, and they're enjoying it a lot. And, and it, it also seems like they're having a lot more sex than they did when I was their age. <laughs> <laughs> and no, in all seriousness, I think that you know that the marriage equality movement or the gay, the gay rights movement in general has created a, a kind of sense around certainly around gay sex that is, has been great for for that, and I think that that has generally there's generally seems to me to be a more sex positive culture. you know you Dan just look at Dan Savage, Dan Savage has probably done more to create sexual pleasure than than uh, I don't know. I'm not sure who, what the alternative is. Be very is. careful. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not finishing the <laughs> Just sentence. Just as, uh, um, as your lawyer. So I don't um, think it's, I, don't think it's uh, I think the problems are, are relatively small compared to the general benefits that all of us have obtained from the cultural changes and the more openness about it and franker discussion. So, so I think it's forward arrow.
0: Guys, thank you all so much for your questions. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening. This is a great success. We want to thank
1: you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?